1991, a woman that was 31 years old was driving home after picking up her child from school. She lived far from here in the country of United Arab Emirates, and she was driving home with a relative when her car was suddenly struck by another vehicle. After the accident, they found out that she had clutched her child close in her arms, her four-year-old. And, and after the accident, her baby walked away with a few bumps and a few bruises. But his mother, this 31-year-old named Munira Abdullah, was completely paralyzed. She was in a coma, and they could not do anything to get her out. It's an interesting story, not just because of an accident, which is relatively common in our world, but because Munira stayed in a coma for the next 28 years. She, this happened in 1991, and in 2018, she finally started to come out of her coma. She had been frozen or paralyzed in that place for almost three decades. The story was interesting to me because it makes me wonder what it must be like to be in that kind of position, that kind of state, for 28 years. Can you imagine what that would be like? I don't know for sure. I mean, maybe it would be interesting to ask her. Maybe... You're sitting there for every single day and you're conscious for those moments, for those hours, for days upon days. Or maybe it's like you fall asleep in one second in 1991 and the next second you wake up and it's 28 years later. I don't know what it would be like to be in that position, but it's a pretty incredible story to me. It reminds me of a verse in 2 Peter 3 and verse 8 that says, One day with the Lord is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. When we consider the brief lifespan that each of us will live, it seems like just a short minute in all of human history. 50 or 70 or 90 years may seem like a pretty long and healthy life, but in the scope of human history, no matter how long we actually live, it is just a brief moment. I want us to look tonight at the length of God's plans. Throughout human history, nobody ever has the final word with God. Whether our lives are filled with good achievements or whether we are an evil person all through our life, we never outlive God and his ultimate plan for humanity. At the end of each story, God is the one who writes the final word. What I want us to see tonight is that God is eternal while each one of us are locked in time. We're looking tonight at Matthew chapter 2, which is where our scripture reading came from, and I want us to focus especially on the life of King Herod. Matthew chapter 2 we're going to look at King Herod. First of all, we see a paranoid tyrant. A paranoid tyrant. I had a lot of fun, actually, looking up the story of Herod the Great. All this last couple few days, I've been telling Livy, Livy, did you know about this? Did you know about that? There's so many interesting things that Herod did and accomplished in his life. And I want us to get a quick refresher on the history, because I enjoy learning about history. Herod came from a family who were Idumean, or Edomites. His father's name was Antipater, and both of them were rulers in the area of modern-day Israel as client kings for the Roman Empire. Herod became a governor at the age of 25 after his father was assassinated. And so he was a governor for a while. His father was killed. Herod fled to Rome to stay alive, and then eventually was returned and was set up as a king by the Romans and named the king of Judea. He ruled for 33 years and achieved great success. Herod was mostly known for his construction projects. He was a warrior. He gathered a lot of cultural achievements. He was good at uniting people from very different backgrounds. But he's mostly known for his architecture and for his construction projects. I'll tell you about a few of them here. First of all, he built a deep sea harbor in Caesarea. 
There was no port where ships could come from Rome down to Israel. So Herod had the idea to build this huge harbor. And in order to do that, they had to build these walls to protect ships that were coming in from the, from the waves of the ocean. Now back in these times, they didn't have cranes or big construction equipment like we have today. So his crews had to build a breakwater that was nine football fields long. It was, it was almost nine football fields. And in some places, it was, had to be built 100 feet down into the water, below the ocean level. And then once they got it up to the ocean height, they had to go 10 feet above that so that they could actually stop the waves. Now, how do you build a wall 110 feet deep in the ocean? Well, I was looking this up, and what they would do is they would build these big um, structures. They were wooden structures. They were 80 feet by about 40 by 80 is what they were. So if you imagine from the back of the sanctuary up to here, and about half of the sanctuary wide, were these big wooden structures that they built, and then they floated them out right into the ocean, the open water, and started filling them with concrete. And they would bring concrete out in boats and boats and boats until it sunk and went down to the bottom of the ocean floor. Then they had divers who took concrete and they would swim down with concrete and fill up these little piles with, with more concrete until it was stuck on the bottom of the ocean floor. So they used all these little brackets, they fastened them together, and then they built on top of each other until they had a wall nine football fields long and in some places 110 feet tall. It's just incredible how they would have done this. So his, his first accomplishment was this port at Caesarea. It had a palace. It had this wall that protected ships that came in. And it was a very famous and well-known place in the ancient world. Another place that's, that Herod was known for building was the clifftop castle called Masada. Masada is a famous place in Israel. It's a, a, a fortress that was built 1,400 feet above the sea level. If you look at it, it's a plateau. It's like a, this straight-up cliffs and then a flat top that he built his, his palace on. And Masada was built as a location where Herod could go in case he got into trouble. So if he was under any threat, this would be the place he would go. In the wintertime, he would go and enjoy this palace that he built. It had a, a garden that hung over the side of the, cath of, the, of the plateau. And it had these beautiful views that he could enjoy. And it was an, a, a remarkable architecture that they were able to build on top of this mountain. The third thing that Herod's known for building is a rebuild of the temple in Jerusalem. Now, Herod was not a Jewish person. He was just ruling the, the Jewish people. And as a token of favor and as to try, a way to gain favor with the Jewish people, Herod built the temple that was known as Herod's Temple. And this is the one that was destroyed by the Romans in AD 70. So to build the temple, Herod hired a thousand priests who were his carpenters and masons, and they completed the entire temple in one and a half years. One of the historians named Josephus wrote, The exterior of the building lacked nothing that could astound either mind or eye. To approaching strangers it appeared from a distance like a snow-clad mountain, for all that was not overlaid with gold was of purest white. Another historian said that Herod the Great was a master builder. Despite his crimes and excesses, no one can doubt his prowess as a builder. It was enjoyable for me to read about Herod and his achievements as an architect. Maybe after the service tonight, you can talk to Luke and find out more about Herodian architecture and see that it is, it is a big deal. It's something that is still talked about in architecture today. Herod was very famous for the things that he built and the things that he achieved. But toward the end of his reign, Herod became more paranoid and violent. 
um, he, he was worried about his children overthrowing him and taking the throne. So at one point, he sent two of his sons to a faraway city to be strangled because he was worried that they were plotting to overthrow him. He also had a private bodyguard of 2,000 soldiers who were ordered to protect him at all times. He was also chronically sick toward the end of his life, and when he was about to die, he gave two commands. He said, first of all, I want you to execute all these prisoners that I've captured so that when I die, people will be mourning for me and they'll feel sorry for me when I'm dead. And secondly, he ordered that his son, Antipater, would also be executed because he was worried that Antipater was going to take over the throne before he died. So his other son was killed five days before Herod passed away himself. So what does this give us a picture of? We hear about Herod. He's a successful person. He's famous throughout the, the ancient world. He's a leader. He's a warrior. He's a soldier. He's a creator of these beautiful places that were some of the wonders of the ancient world. So we hear a little bit from history about what Herod did. But I want us to look here in Matthew 2 at what Herod was like. We see here in Matthew that the tyrant learns about the king. What does Matthew 2 show us about Herod himself? First of all, it confirms the fact that he was very paranoid. If you look at Matthew 2 and verse 3, he sees, we see Herod interacting with the wise men. It says, when Herod the king had heard these things, the things that the wise men told him, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. He says, wait a minute, you guys are talking about a king of the Jews? I'm not familiar with this guy. I'm supposed to be the king of Judah. I'm not supposed to be having any other um, threats to my throne. He had alarm bells going off. And so, you know, this kind of makes sense given the other things we know about him. He had secret palaces where he could escape. He had bodyguards that would protect him at all times. He would murder his own family if he thought they were a threat. And all of a sudden, Herod hears that there is a king of the Jews who has recently been born. What else do we see about Herod? Look at verse 8. He says, and he, the Bible says, And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child. And when ye have found him, bring me word again, that I may come and worship him also. Now, do you think for one moment that Herod was planning to go and worship this king of the Jews once he found him? Of course not. Herod is a paranoid person, and he's worried about this child who's been promised that these wise men from far away have come all this direction to worship. So Herod lied. He was hoping that he could find the, this, this Jewish king and neutralize the threat to his power. The last thing we see about Herod in verse 16 is that Herod was an angry person. Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wroth and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem and in all the coasts thereof from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. Herod was an angry person with a violent temper. He felt foolish. He felt like he had been mocked by these wise men. They had come to tell him about a king. He told them to come back, and then later on he realizes enough time has passed. These guys have left town, and they never told me where the king was. So what does he do? He sends his soldiers to go murder all of the children, two years old and under. I always wondered what this must have been like. Bethlehem was just a little village. Maybe 1,000, 2,000 people lived there at this time. And so the number of victims of Herod's order could have been anywhere from 20 to 40 to 60 children who were murdered. I can't imagine the horror of innocent infants being murdered like this in this way. And yet in the reign of Herod, this wouldn't have even raised too many eyebrows. There were so many violent things that he did that this is just another in, many, in, a, in a long series of evil things that he did. So what do we see in Herod, the paranoid tyrant? 
We see a man who embraced his power. He wanted fame, so in order to achieve fame, he had people murdered right when he was about to die. He wanted control. He was willing to kill people in his family or random infants that were far away from him just to ensure his power. Herod used every tool he had to claw his way to the top and ensure that he stayed there. And yet, as we talk about Herod tonight, that's not the, this is not much to see. Despite all of his efforts, achievements, and actions to solidify his place in history, a simple phrase reminds us of the end of Herod and of every human. Look, if you would, please, at verse 19. But when Herod was dead. The story of Matthew 2 is not about Herod. The entirety of Herod's 54-year lifespan is only a dot on the timeline of God's plans. When we look at history, Herod was a big deal. He had a significant effect on architecture and history, but his name is just another one on a long list of tyrants who are now dead. We can look back and see historical figures like Caligula or Joseph Stalin or Pol Pot, and we see evil men who tried to create a world of their own making. In some ways, they may have succeeded at their delusional goals, but in the end, time outlasts every person. The next item on Herod's agenda is eternal judgment, and it has been that way for the past 2,000 years. First of all, we see a, a tyrant. A tyrant who is concerned about his own well-being and success. But what I want us to see secondly is a purposeful God. We see a lot of Herod in Matthew chapter 2, but secondly, we see that God has been at work to accomplish his goals at the exact same time. Now, first of all, I want us to stop and consider what we know about God. What do we know in a brief summary of who God is and what he does? We know that God is omniscient. He knows all things. We know that God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. And we know that God is omnipresent. He is everywhere, all at once. And what do we see him doing in this chapter, in the story of Jesus' early life? What I want us to see is, in Matthew 2, that God works right through Herod's plans to achieve a bigger purpose. First of all, we see that the Messiah is protected against Herod. Galatians 4.4 says, But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son. I love that phrase, when the fullness of time was come. At just the right time in human history, God sent his Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus was born at just the right moment when God's plan was perfectly in place for him to be born. But doesn't it seem like Jesus is so vulnerable? He's born in a stable to parents who are poor and, and humble. He lives in a tiny little country that's under the rule of the Roman Empire. And his leader is a paranoid despot named Herod the Great. It doesn't seem like the ideal situation for Jesus to be born. He seems to be at great risk with no human protection as we would know it or want him to have. But is God concerned in this situation? Is God worried by that, that aspect of, of what's happening? No, exactly not. Look, if you would, at verse 12. God has other things in place. And being warned of God in a dream, the Bible says, that they should not return to Herod, they, the wise men, departed into their own country another way. First of all, we see that God protects Jesus Christ by having the wise men get a message from God himself. He says, don't go back to Herod. That's not part of the plan that I want to happen. We also see that Joseph is warned in a dream in verse 13. And when they were departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, and take the young child and his mother, and flee into Egypt, and be thou there until I bring thee word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. We see that God warns the wise men. God warns Joseph. 
when Herod is worried and conspiring to kill this, this child king, God has another plan in place. God is telling the wise men what to do. He's telling Joseph what to do. So first of all, God protects Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Secondly, God's prophecies are fulfilled in this chapter. In verses 5 and 6, we see a promise that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem. This is a quotation from Micah 5.2 in the Old Testament. But thou, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. The first prophecy is that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Secondly, the Messiah would also be called out of Egypt. It seems like it would be difficult to have both things to be true. But look down at verses uh, 13 through 15. There's a promise that Jesus would come, the Messiah would come from Egypt. In Hosea 11.1, that's the reference of these verses. And it says, When Israel was a child, then I loved him, and called my son out of Egypt. The third prophecy in Matthew 2 is that there would be great mourning for these children who are suddenly killed. In Jeremiah 31.15, the Bible says, Thus saith the Lord, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping, Rachel weeping for her children, and ref refused to be comforted for her children because they were not. This tragedy of suffering shows that God's promises were true, even in this sad state. If we believe in a God who is powerful and in control, we must remember that what he says is true, and what he promises actually happens. What he promised to the Old Testament Christians in Micah and in Hosea and in Jeremiah and in other places were the exact prophecies that came true in the life of Jesus Christ. So first we see that the Messiah is protected. Second, we see that God's prophecies are fulfilled. And third, we find that Jesus Christ is the King of the Jews and the expected Messiah that was waited for. At the end of Jesus' life on earth, Pilate asks if Jesus is the King of the Jews. In John 18, Jesus answers, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight, that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. Jesus' words in these passages makes his purpose very clear. He was instituting a spiritual kingdom, not leading an earthly revolution. He was the king for the Jews, but not the king that they accepted. John 1 says this because it says, he says, he came, into the world, he came unto his own, and his own received him not. We see that Jesus Christ was the king of the Jews, who was rejected of his own people. But how does that fit into the, the big picture, the purpose that God had planned for his life? Well, we see that God, from the very beginning of existence, has had a very good plan for us. God's plan is that he would create a world with men and women who had a choice. They could choose to love and worship and adore God, or they could choose to do their own, their own thing, that go their own way. And the story of history is that Adam and Eve sinned. And because of that, God offered to humans an opportunity for a Savior, a Messiah who would forgive our sins. Like we heard this morning, the blood of Jesus Christ is what can forgive and take away the sins that we commit. One day, at the beginning of creation, God would send a Messiah who would take away the sins of the world. And in Matthew 2, we see that that Messiah was born on earth. Jesus Christ came to earth, 
was born in a lowly place and eventually grew to be the savior of the world. Secondly, we see the purposes that God had in this world. But lastly, I want to apply these truths to how we live and what we do with our lives. We saw, first of all, a tyrant, a tyrant who was, um, who was worried about his own place. Secondly, we see a purposeful God. And third, we find a precious promise, a precious promise for us. What are the takeaways that we see here in Matthew 2? How does this apply to our life? And what can we find in the way that God tells us this story? First of all, I think we should remember that God always writes the last word. God always writes the last word. In Psalm 2, the Bible says, Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh, and the Lord shall have them in derision. In Isaiah 40, verse 15, the Bible says, Behold, the nations are a drop in the bucket, and are counted as the small dust of the balance. Behold, he taketh up the isles as a very little thing. You know, we look back at this story of Herod the Great, and we see an evil tyrant who controlled things around him. Someone who murdered people who got in his way, and destroyed any opposition to his authority. And it's a story that's not so rare or foreign to us nowadays, too. There are still tyrants and despots who lead countries around the world. There are still people who control and manipulate so that they stay in power. And we look at these people, and sometimes it can cause fear. They can make us feel weak or vulnerable. Or if we live in those countries, I'm sure we would feel a sense of danger or uh, risk of being alive at this time. But when these rulers come up against God, he's not threatened. He's not overwhelmed by their power. It says when they set themselves against him here in Psalm 2, he laughs at them. He holds them in derision. In Isaiah, it says they're like a drop in the bucket. They're, you know, if you spit in a bucket, it doesn't make that much of a difference. You could have to add a lot of water before you even notice that the bucket is full. And God says the best you can offer, the, the strongest you can possibly be, is nothing to me. I don't even notice the power that you think you have. First of all, remember that God always writes the last word. Whether it is King Herod, whether it is a leader who's alive today and ruling another country, remember that at some point that person will die. They're human, just like me and you. And God will still be in control and his plans will still be going forward. Second, understand that God's plan is being enacted in our world, even though it is broken and failing and full of sorrow. Jesus promises us that he is always with us in Matthew 28. He says, Lo, I am with you always. I think that we should take comfort knowing that God sees and understands each sorrow and pain that we face. The comfort that we have from God himself is different than the, 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 than the grief that others face without any hope and without any comfort from God. It also tells us in the Bible in 2 Corinthians 4, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Suffering in this life is temporary. We live for a world to come. When I think about Matthew 2, one of the most um, difficult or sad parts, undoubtedly, 
is the fact that children and toddlers and infants were murdered by Herod. It's not a story that's uncommon. This happens many times in the Bible and throughout history. And how do we make sense of something like this? Or how do we relate to it in our world today? I, we have a toddler in our home, and I can't imagine a sudden unexpected loss where soldiers show up and murder your child. I can't imagine the horror of living through that. And how do we make sense of that in this story? Of How do we understand what God is doing in this place? God does not promise that all wrongdoing or loss or death or pain will make sense in this life. Tragedies or trauma may never have resolution in our world because it is broken and still filled with sin. But God, do, God does promise to be with us in suffering. He promises that he is near to those with broken hearts. And he offers us hope that one day evil will be judged and eternally punished. We see, lastly, we should consider whether our goals in life have eternal value. When we think about these, these hopes and these promises that we have from God, we see that God has a purpose, that evil does not succeed, and we see that, lastly, we should look at our own lives and consider whether they have value in, in, eternal sense, in an eternal sense. Herod's lifelong pursuits may not seem too important in 2023. Herod is not somebody I think about every day of the week or once a month or probably even once a year. Herod is someone whose world-class port in Caesarea, that wall I was telling you about, it's now broken down. It was faulty when he built it, and it settled down into the ocean. It, the, the highest part of it is now 15 feet below the sea level, and nobody lives there. It's just a, a flat piece of rock. Masada and the, the temple, the Jerusalem temple, are all but leveled to the ground by others in history. Herod's greatest accomplishments are historical markers. They're just memories of what used to be thousands of years ago. Jesus tells us, though, in Matthew 19, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. This is a truth that Herod did not understand, did he? He built impressive things. He built cities and palaces and fortresses and ports. And none of those things matter in eternity. They haven't mattered for years and years, and they don't matter in the future. And it can be the same for us, too. It's easy for us to focus our lives on things that may not have eternal value. Maybe you and I aren't building a port, or we're not diving down to the bottom of the ocean to build a breakwater. Or maybe we're not building a castle on the side of a mountain. But it's easy for us to spend our lives on things that don't have eternal value. And Jesus tells us to lay up for ourselves treasure in heaven. Where are we investing our lives? Do we believe that what we do right now in life can be invested for value at a later date? I'm reminded of a song that I grew up hearing. And the last verse of it says, He was not willing that any should perish. Am I his follower, and can I live? Longer at ease with a soul going downward, lost for the lack of the help I might give. Perishing, perishing, thou wast not willing. Master, forgive and inspire us anew. Banish our worldliness. Help us to ever live with eternity's values in view. Would it be true that our lives are filled with values that last, that live for eternity? Not things that, that corrupt and decay away like, like the things that Herod invested his life in. In conclusion, the story of Herod's life and his actions in Matthew 2 
demonstrate to us that God is eternal while we are locked in time. God revealed his purpose for Jesus Christ even before he was born in that unassuming stable in Bethlehem. And despite all of the efforts of Herod, Jesus lived to be exactly the Messiah that God intended and that our world so desperately needs. The life of Herod also shows us that our time here on earth is short. We see that God is operating far outside the boundaries of time that we feel. He may be working in our lives or in our city or in our world for purposes that may last far beyond the years that you and I live here. Let us live our lives fully for God with this eternal truth in what we do.